Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Welcome to this, the latest edition of the Cal Podcast, with me, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Llewellyn Usher. Thank you for your feedback so far this year. While we're endeavouring to shorten the duration of the podcast, this week's edition is longer than intended to ensure we capture the fantastic insights from two people who've performed at the very top of their respective fields. Today's guests are best friends. United by a love of rugby at Durham University in the 1990s, their friendship has remained constant throughout the pivotal moments of their lives. Now co-authors of World Class, How to Lead, Learn and Grow Like a Champion, they have drawn on a wealth of personal examples from their significant experience gained across top-level international sports and global business. Ben Fennell started working in the advertising industry after graduating from Oxford in 1994. Becoming a board member of Bartle Bogle Hegarty at 28, in 2002 at the age of 30, he moved to Singapore to become chief executive for the Southeast Asian office of BBH. Subsequently, throughout his 10 years as CEO, the agency featured prominently in the Sunday Times 100 best companies to work for. Ben now runs The Growth House, a company he set up in 2019, which delivers teamship workshops, leadership coaching, and growth consultancy. In turn, having begun his commercial career at HSBC, Will Greenwood played professional rugby for 11 years, which saw him win 55 England and two British Lions caps. He was an integral member of England's World Cup campaign of 2003, and remains England's third highest try scorer of all time. Since retiring in 2006, Will has been a presenter for Sky Sports and a sports journalist for The Telegraph, and is currently Chief Commercial Officer at Affinity. Will, Ben, welcome to the Army Leadership Podcast. Great for you to join us today. Lovely to be here. Thank you, sir. Well done, Will. Um, if I can start, so obviously we, we've discussed a little bit about the, the purpose of the podcast and our theme, uh, this, this term, so to speak, is talking about leading high-performance teams and what that actually means and indeed what it means to be part of a high-performance team, which is obviously very applicable. Uh, before we get into that and understand a little bit about where you've both come from and, and your experiences, uh, perhaps I could ask you an initial question. And Ben, if I perhaps direct the first one at you, if I may, perhaps you can surmise what leadership means to you in a, in a sentence. Nice, easy one to open up with, which is always good. The, um, it means so many things. It means setting a clear vision for the people who you're asking to follow you. It means leading by example. It means making the tough decisions you sometimes have to about the casting and selection of that team, making sure that you've got the people you need around you. It's about setting the framework and setting standards and also putting those sort of those two bedfellows together of empowerment uh, and accountability. I always think those two words are words that should never be heard uh, independent of each other. If you're going to talk about empowerment, you should always talk about accountability. So a whole host of things. And um, just before I'm sure Will's going to have a similar go at it, I do think this is a really intriguing one for us to do this um this audience and this pod because often we're talking to businesses or cultures um who are trying to get better in this space and actually the military the forces our audiences and individuals and people that we quote often so this is a it's a real delight and it's a real privilege to be talking to this group well ben thanks and, and you know it's equally interesting to hear 
your views and your experiences that I think will will benefit us in in all that we're trying to do. And you know, the development of leadership is always an iterative process, and it's something that we can't rest on our laurels, irrespective of what sector or area that one works in. It's always important to keep striving to to keep developing. Um, Will, I'm not going to ask you. I'm not going to sort of do yin and yang, ask you the same sort of questions because I know yeah. you, you will give a very coherent answer, I'm sure. But in light of what Ben said and your experiences, do you think leaders are born or made? Wow, it's, that's a wonderful question. Do you know what? I, I, I feel as though I've met people who fit into both. I feel, for example, with some of the, the business, if we were to go to Sky and talk about someone like a Jeremy Darrick, I just feel like he was, the second he was put on this earth, he was meant to create a mission, uh, marry up the long-term goals with the short-term goals, talk about, do many of the things Ben's already alluded to. And then uh, let me switch straight over to another sort of man I led, uh, followed for many years, Martin Johnson, who didn't want to go anywhere near leadership to begin with. He just wanted to, in a way, street fight and brawl on a rugby field, just be one of the lads uh, below the radar, no press, no media, uh, and then sort of had it thrust upon him. Uh, and over time become became this, this human being that if uh, I, I joked about it to some friends just last week, I said, we're all 50 now, 50 years old. So I think some of the, uh, Leonard might, Jason Leonard might be the oldest, about 54, 55, something like that. And yet if Martin rang us up and said, lads, we're playing Saturday, it'd be like the Expendables, the film, we would just say where and when, and, and we'd all turn up. And, and that's, I mean, that's just the embodiment of, uh, of a leader to be able to at any stage call upon any of his ex-colleagues. And they would say, if he said jump, they all shout how high. So uh, I genuinely don't believe it's binary, your answer, born or made. Uh, I think there's, there's room, there's absolutely room, room for both. I think there are some who are more natural when they are younger and can be identified, but that doesn't mean those within your ranks who might not seem like great leadership materials shouldn't be afforded the opportunity at some stage to be given what were your words? Accountability, but yeah. also empower should be empowered and given the chance, and, and and see how they go. You also just to build on that, I think sometimes people presume that leadership is only the leadership of people. It might sound like a counterintuitive thing to say, but I've worked with people often, for example, who were brilliant strategists, uh, and they would tell me I'm not a leader but they were absolutely leading people with the power of their strategic thoughts. They were setting vision. There are people who are brilliant operationally with regard to logistics, and they were leading people with regard to their, their operational and logistical thinking. So I think often actually it's just urging people who may not feel they're wonderful leaders or they have leadership in them to actually look and assess and reframe the question because they're often leading more than they're aware. And just if you, myself and Ben, Ben's a leader, is, is how I've always viewed it. And ever since we met at university, it was away we go. This is the plan, guys. Let's go. And I've always seen myself as a pretty good number two. Uh, and I've, I felt the same when I was an international sportsman. I feel the same now in business. I feel uh, my strengths lie in working within the team, understanding what it is we're trying to do, and then working out a really good way to deliver on those tactics and that strategy. And I think often a push that everyone needs to, so many leadership books, you must be, you must be number one, how to be yeah. the top dog, how to be the boss. Actually, 
in life, how to be a good teammate is often yeah. uh, undervalued. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a really interesting you know, avenue to go down. I think we should look at that a, a bit more maybe. And you're touching on leadership, followership. You've touched on a whole raft of things about why you'd follow Martin Johnson, you know, now a few years after you all stopped playing rugby. Trust, perhaps fear, maybe. But um, you know, ultimately, it's about your respect for him and, and how that develops. So you're talking about allowing someone to lead by being uh, an active follower. Is that, is that right, Will? So what I'm saying, so there's a couple of things on that. So uh, if, if I take the question down, is it going along the lines of can leaders be grown? So when we, let's, let's jump into my rugby analogy for the moment. I suspect most of the listeners here would, would, uh, would know me from, from my rugby past. Where Clive was so great, we broke the game of rugby down into seven areas. And we call them world-class performance behaviours. And we were all afforded the opportunity to lead in one of those roles if it was appropriate to you. There's no point in me being in charge of scrums, but certainly in terms of defence or attack or counter-attack, I could be involved. And I was given time to lead. And if I felt uncomfortable or, or didn't want to be front of the classroom, didn't want to be at the strategy board delivering the tactics, fine, I could drop back in. But everyone was given, and some extraordinary people who you wouldn't have suspected of being great leaders. You always felt Jason Robinson was someone who just bang, gone, but actually put him put him in charge of a, of a troop of lads or of the backfield. And he was an outstanding chap. So um, I think I'm sort of answering the question that you're asking. But please dive in and tell me, Greens, you've completely done a politician thing and answered something completely different. No, I think you, you, there is no right answer to any of these questions. It's just interesting seeing. I think we'll talk about perhaps leadership groups. And I think that's always really interesting when people talk about, and you hear it a lot in professional sport and big organisations of the leadership group. And it's, it's you know, from, a, from military parlance where you know, you're giving certain people certain areas of responsibility and then allowing them to do it, which ultimately is mission command in military speak, yeah. whereby you, you trust that person and you empower them with that trust and a, and a set of key deliverables, whatever it may be, that they have to then come up with. And then you turn to them for the, okay, what are we going to do now in, in this analogy with Jason Robertson as fullback is, okay, in defence, you know, you boss the team from the back rather than perhaps Martin Johnson trying to do it from the depths of the, the ruck. And, and I think is that, that's perhaps what you're, what you're saying. There's, a, there's another bit that maybe we should, we should talk about because where you were headed a moment ago around teamship versus leadership I actually think in, in the book we've written, we probably talk more about teamship than we yeah. do leadership. Definitely the, the business I've started um, is, is four years old now. And we're now really clear the world doesn't need another leadership business. Um, the world doesn't necessarily need another leadership book. Because actually what we observe is there are some really quite, quite compelling leaders who are often operating in really quite dysfunctional teams. So the reason... The business I run is, is getting some purchase and some momentum is often in big organizations, the individual, the, the, the momentum of your career takes you, if this makes sense, in kind of in verticals. You get very focused on your boss and your direct reports. And you think of that group as kind of your first team. Your first team is the team that you lead. And often you really neglect your sort of peer-to-peer -peer relationships and in the big organizations, particularly at an exco, at the sort of the top of a business, these are all people who might be MDs or CEOs in other businesses. 
So that can come with a bit of ego. It can come sometimes with a bit of competition. So actually, I think where we're trying to hone in, both in the book and, and again in the business that I run, is the high-performance behaviours of a group of leaders who've been put together in a high-performance team. And it's it's interesting that actually teamship and teamwork is kind of the first skill we learn when we enter the workplace. But it's actually a muscle and a skill that we kind of neglect often as our career goes on. So in that bit about your peers and you know feeding off each other using each other to help develop each other you know i think that's really really important and you, you guys talk about the the friendship that you've had since the, the 90s when you're at durham together that's gone all the way through you know your respective experiences careers and whether it be in business both now or whether it was business and sport but you talk about the fact that your friendship acts as a mentorship or a, or a sounding yeah. board for each other have there been any instances for both of you when you found that to be crucial in allowing your own decision making in the areas that you were working in? Loads. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So um, it's, it's where to start. And I think we've always, I think one of the th- key things we've always made sure of is to understand the terms of engagement uh, and to be really clear. And I think a lot of the, a word that I nearly talked about earlier, and I think people are sometimes afraid of is vulnerability uh, and real honesty and transparency and we have you can open this up to a wider group we've got about four or five of us who once every six months would would go out and just share everything uh, in terms of what's going on with our lives and reaching out and i think everyone needs that sort of mentorship that that peer group that you can turn to who are working and operating outside of your world because otherwise you there's a tendency to hear a whole load of echo everyone agreeing with you that old nodding donkey theory yes and, and and people asking sort of pleasantries how are you fine and move on actually um people holding you to account on your performance people holding you to account on on how you're behaving and, and the respect you're you're wanting from people but not necessarily showing to others and i think that's it, it's it's a classic extension of the buddy system that uh, you, you might call it a praetorian guard you might call it an old guard. What, who who are the companions? Alexander the Great had his yeah. companions. All these people around you that, that in serious times of stress that we all go through and personal tragedy that we all have in our lives, you have those people in and around you that you can lean on like a, like a, like a, a crutch. I think the other bit on it, particularly for us too, is, you know, I had a 24-year business career. Green's had an amazing rugby career actually a bit of distance and perspective and fresh eyes on what the other guy is doing is massively helpful because often things that seem insurmountable, we're just too close to be able to see. And even our close colleagues or your close teammates, you don't always want to share some of the stuff that you're able to with someone who you really trust, who has a little bit of distance. And, you know, throughout my CEO-ship, you know, one of my first phone calls when anything went wrong was Will, because it always gave me a different perspective and hopefully the same kind of work the other way around. And that, I, mm. I do think it's it's fresh eyes. We talk a little bit in the book about this thing that Pixar do. Pixar have created this thing called the Brain Trust, which is a fascinating concept because what Pixar figured out was no matter how Um, experienced the leadership team on the movie was on Toy Story or The Incredibles or whatever, there would be a moment where they would get 
lost in the long grass. They'd get to a plot problem or a character problem or a technology problem, and it could only be unpicked and unlocked by someone with a bit of perspective and distance. Um, and so you'd take you'd take your problem to the brain trust, and they would come back with feedback and fresh eyes. And I think. That's kind of what we've always tried to do for each other. Yeah, and if I bring that to life a little bit, let's go back to, to a lady called Cheryl Calder, who won back-to-back World Cup winners' medals, one with England, one with South Africa in 2007 in men's rugby. She was the hockey coach. She was a vision coach, and she opened up the pitch to us. There's a guy called Humphrey Walters, who was a uh, worked for Lloyd's Development Capital, and he completely changed our view of what we did in the halftime in big matches and how we started second halves. And uh, to pick up the phrase that we've sort of boiled it down to, it's fresh eyes to innovate. Um, get very many different views of the same mountain and sometimes a slightly hazy picture can snap into focus uh, by someone outside. What do they say? You can't see the wood for the trees. You're so deep in the weeds, mm-hmm. you're ignoring what might be seemingly obvious, but you do need people from outside your group to, to come in and look at the problem with a different view. That's very applicable to what to how we operate, even at the very a very lowest level, where the audience who are in the military would understand the the buddy buddy system, where you're looking after yourself, but you're also looking after you, yeah. your comrade next to you, and that goes all the way up the chain of command. Because especially when one gets to positions of responsibility, and you're so focused on the, the problem at hand, you know the coal face is is right in front of your nose. Actually, you, you're you're forgetting even the basics sometimes, like being having someone to sanity check what you're doing yeah. and being a advisor, mentor, just just a support is is absolutely critical and something we're really looking hard at. In terms of leadership, how have you seen and is it important for leaders to adapt their way that they lead to ensure that they get the best out of people and groups under them? Yeah, so I, I had the great privilege, particularly the back end of my career, of working with and for some unbelievable CEOs. So the great privilege of working in advertising is your with different businesses every week. Um, So I might be with Tesco in the morning and Unilever in the afternoon and Barclays the next day. And one of the great privileges was watching what Dave Lewis did at Tesco, the the Tesco turnaround to watch from relatively close order was an extraordinary thing to do. And as I reflect back on it, what was so extraordinary about what Dave did is he, he had this sequential approach to turning the business around and it's only with a little bit of distance you you really appreciate it but for the first couple of years he was absolutely focused on on colleagues and getting the internal market absolutely reset and there were so many fires that he could have tried to put out there were so many different places he could have gone but he absolutely focused on getting colleagues to feel proud of Tesco again Uh, and that was an absolute primary objective because what he knew was colleague pride powers customer service you can't come out with a great big customer agenda if your colleagues are not proud of Tesco they're just not going to deliver it for you we used to see this at British Airways staff engagement how cabin crews were feeling about the airline directly tracked and correlated with customer service So the first hill to take was getting colleagues to feel proud again. With that in place, they launched their new purpose, which was serving uh, Britain shoppers a little better every day. 
And then they went absolutely after making customer service the center of everything they did. Proud colleagues, delighted customers. And then maybe two and a half, three years in, I remember vividly Dave saying, right, we're now going to go after food quality. You know, we've got colleague engagement where we need it. We've got customer service where we need it. The next brick in the wall, next phase of this journey is getting our food quality credentials uh, where they need to be. And that was brilliant for us because BBH at that stage did all the food love stories work. But why do I tell that slightly long-winded story? Was It was the most extraordinary sequential playbook. I'm going to get colleagues where I need them. I'm going to get customers in place. And then I'm going to go after. And by the time that had been done, the focus and the discipline of keeping his organization, 400,000 people on message was, was um, spectacular to watch. Like buying into the culture. Yeah, absolutely. Let me go dive in on the sort of rugby side, which you're sort of keen to lead on is, I think what, let's go with Sir Clive Woodward. I think Groucho Marx, I think you use this one. I have many ideas, and if you don't like, I've got many more. He had a really fascinating thing that he wouldn't negotiate on his vision to win a World Cup. He wouldn't really negotiate on his mission statement um, to establish an environment of elitism, excellence, trust, and fun. And I'm very quick to make sure that when people understand elite, sometimes you people use it out of context in rugby because it's seen as well. You go to a private school. That It was actually having spent times down, down in Limston with, the, with the, the Royal Marines there, we began to understand how a real elite team works. And so we wanted to use that change of vocabulary. Then below that, those were the non-negotiables. You know, you got to buy into those, those, those belief systems. And then... I whispered very quietly, I'm, I'm sure Clive won't listen. He wasn't, a, he wasn't the greatest rugby coach on the planet. What he was was a fantastic delegate and employer of quite brilliant thinkers that could then operate on strategy and tactics and deliver our basics, our groundwork, our set-piece ball, and then our cherries on the cake, our attacking threat on top of that. So my wife always said to me, she knew when it was England training time, because I just had this massive grin on my face. So I'd be going into an environment created by Sir Clive where I knew every day I could go and be the best version of myself because I know I could come up with ideas and input and almost have two hands on the steering wheel, or certainly one hand on the steering wheel of where exactly I was going. So my long-winded way of saying a sort of similar thing to Ben, I think, is that uh, he never went to war about his ideas, but you know he sort of debated that was happy to change ideas of how we might get from A to B. We never compromised on the key words of what we should stand for and going and doing and achieving something that no other team had ever done before from the Northern Hemisphere. I think that's really interesting, Will. You, you say his vision. Uh, yeah, I remember exactly where it was. Danesfield House, 1997, 1st of September. You've got to remember that, uh, I mean, the World Cup was only picked up in 1987 the first time. It was almost... Mm done on the back of a cigarette packet. They said, we've got to have a World Cup. Look at it in cricket and everything that's going on in football. Let's do one. So admittedly, when Clive took over, there had only been three World Cups before then. But the, the focus, the historical focus of the Northern Hemisphere had always been, we've got to beat the Celts. It's a great year if we can win a triple crown. And Clive, on the 1st of September 1997, we were the, like the eighth best team in the world, I think, when he pulled it. We were at Danesfield House in Henley, pulled the flip chart back. There it is, win the World Cup. That was it. Pure. I'm only here to do that. And along the way, uh, there were times when no one loses on purpose, but there was an understanding of particular moments, particular campaigns 
where we needed to improve as a side and we would have to try things and mm. sometimes they didn't work and we got beat. But I could list four grand epic Grand Slam failures and out of each one of those four, I will pick you exactly why we went on to win in 03. And that was a, in a long, a long way down to the bravery of Clive creating this, I'm not going to allow you to wallow in mediocrity for which this team with this amount of funding, with this amount of players in this country have lived in for too long. And when he shared it, not everyone in the room believed him, right? I mean, he talks about the fact that it split the audience. Yeah, well, it went into three categories. Those at the front, like Johnson and Batneil back, were like, finally, a a believer that we can follow. Yes, Clive, who wasn't so. Yes, Clive. Those at the back, I won't name names. There's no need for me to throw names under the bus. You do name them in the book, they will. It would just go, (laughs) it'll never work. It'll never last. I'm not here, you know, let's just look after my own pot. And then there were those in the middle, like me, who'd just been picked and I didn't know where to go. And Clive said his greatest difficulty, his greatest piece of man management was keeping the undecided away from those at the back of the room before we'd become a fellow naysayer. Um, so, yeah, it was split into three. I remember it. I remember the meeting. I, you know, there's certain moments in life where you just get struck uh, by the enormity of the challenge that's being put in front of you and the immediate grasp of that opportunity yeah. by key players who would go on to be key players for him. So you've both very eloquently picked a couple of really, really current themes that we're working on. And perhaps in a little while, we'll come back if we may to your point, Will, about learning from failure is, in, is so important and not just acquiescing to the fact that you think you've literally failed and that's it. So perhaps we can come back to that in a second, but just exploring this bit about leaders and leading eclectic groups of people who might have divergent views, uh, who might have divergent aims. You know, we recently had Kate Richardson-Walsh on the podcast. You know, you actually talk about her saying in the book about what would a gold medalist do? You know, you hear Dan Carter, who will you'll be able to relate to, say talks about being an all-black great, not just an all-black, but an all-black great. How do you balance leading a team that has people who are just happy to be in it, just happy to go to the Olympics, just happy to get the shirt and the kit and thanks very much, against those who are there to absolutely achieve greatness, both themselves, but also with a team? So I'll pick up quickly on that. Is um... I think all the great teams for me are, are self-policed, are player-led. And it is, for me, a really interesting one that you, you mentioned those, uh, and I don't want to sort of be smug with the, with the, the medal. There are certain players in our team who just wouldn't have allowed those characters that you're talking about, those who are just happy to be there, who just wouldn't have survived. And actually, once the parameters are set, it is down to those that, that, that look into you. I mean, I, it was like Martin Johnson was staring into your very soul at the start of every training session at Sandhurst on a Tuesday afternoon all those years ago. And it was a defensive session. It was miles away from the big stadiums, no sponsors, no one watching, just an utter refusal, never to give anything but his best. And that would set the example. And then those that want to go on that journey got the privilege to stay on that journey, but those that didn't want to go on that journey, fine, it's, that's your prerogative, but uh, was slowly but surely removed. It's a lot easier, I understand, in a sports team to be able to remove those. But I think... Especially an elite uh, one. Yeah, exactly. So I think I've got 
to to where the conversation was going in terms of you were talking about those because there's a, I, I categorically put myself early on in the category of I'm just happy to be here. Hmm. This is oh my god! I'm playing for England. I'm a skinny kid from Blackburn. I grew up on pot noodles. Uh, I could bench press sixty kilos. I thought I was the original faking it. Uh, and then there was that moment when I found myself in a changing room with jo- in a tunnel with Jonah Loma. And I don't know if you've seen that program, Quantum Leap. I sort of had my own quantum leap moment going, oh my God, what am I doing here? Probably and, thinking, hey, but I don't have to tackle him, I would imagine. Correct. Uh, and, and Austin Healy turned around to me and said, go on then, Will, tell him what you said in the changing room. And I was like, no, no, I didn't say anything to Jonah. So, uh, so I was one of those people you were talking about. And uh, it is elite, elite performance and, and the sort of leadership you got from other players that you wouldn't have mentioned, Phil Vickery and these guys just set such extraordinary examples. I think, Ben, in your terms of leadership, you said at the start, you've got to deliver upon those. I just There was no survival in that squad with mediocrity. I think, mm. that, I think that brings us to a thing we haven't talked about, and maybe we should, which is the whole of the first kind of third of, of our book and, and of our belief system is about difference. And I, I think elite teams high-performing teams have this really interesting balance of absolute consistency, of mission, of purpose, of standards, um, and we would hope over time of kind of code of conduct and behaviours, but huge amounts of difference in cognitive makeup, in personality type, in leadership and teamship archetypes. You know, if we if we could go through Will's team, they looked not dissimilar. You couldn't have a group of more different people in terms of personality types. If I went through the highest performing teams I was ever part of, they were rammed with cognitive and leadership um, difference. People who were really operational, people who were really strategic, people who were glass half full, people who were glass half empty, people who wanted more and more data for their decision-making, people who wanted to close everything down more mathsy, more artsy, more creative, more numerate. And I go back to job one of the leader is to select correctly, to cast your team properly. I think Clive says coaching is 50% selection. And I, I kind of understand where, he, where he's going with that because the, the total, uh, what's the word, you know, consistency of values and mission and belief that, that Will was talking about has to be balanced in our view with as much difference as you can pack into your team. And I'm really, even as I'm saying that, I'm really intrigued to know how the military feel about that as a, uh, as, as a concept, because in many ways from the outside, it looks like when one's trying to bring a troop or a, uh, a division together, you're trying to build consistency. But I, I presume you also want individuals to bring their best selves too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all, all the time. So much of what you're saying chimes with what we are looking at and are trying to develop in the army. In fact, I know across the services in, in full stop, but you talk a lot about success, well, successful sports people and and, in, and to a degree business people talk about the values and the standards that people expect. You know, in the military, we have a, it's codified. We, we yeah. have it written down, you know, in good military fashion, there's a mnemonic, sea drills, you know, courage, discipline, respect for others, integrity, loyalty, selfless commitment. And these are the values uh, and and then in the standards are... I'd like to have it on record for everyone listening to the podcast that you didn't have those written down in front of you 
they rolled off your tongue effortlessly. Thank you very much, Will. <laughs> the standards are that, that needs to be lawful, acceptable, and totally professional. Yeah. So the, you know, the values and standards that we live by are the things that we're looking at hard about um, how we they fundamentally underpin everything we do. And everything we do as a military and our core purpose is to is to defend the nation's interests at home and overseas, whatever that may be, and whatever is asked of us at any time. With that in mind. And we inculcate this and we, we try and assimilate it in as, as early as possible, as regularly as possible. So it's in the DNA th- through our lives, 24-7. How do you try and achieve that with perhaps business, Ben, uh, where you know, there might be divergent views on what yeah. people are trying to achieve out of being in that business? Well, the first thing I would say is the basics, I think, are borrowed from the military. So strong cultures have a clear understanding of their past and the past, its stories, its values help you navigate the future. So, for example, the company that I spent 24 years working at, 16 years as CEO, the founder, Nigel Bogle, would meet every single new joiner. So BBH London, which I ran, had 450 people. Nigel would have a coffee with every single new joiner. And they would have half an hour together and he would talk a little bit about what BBH meant to him. He would hear uh, from them. But then also BBH would do a thing every six months. We would do a thing called dunk. It was called dunk because the idea was you were literally dunking these new joiners in the culture. And we would show creative work. We would tell stories and we would give them an understanding of what it is they were joining. Not because... We wanted BBH to be stuck in a 1982 expression of itself, but because we believed there were some values that were enduring. And I think this gets us to another interesting concept, which is the idea of values and principles that endure, but practices and strategies and tactics that must evolve. Mm -hmm. And again, elite cultures are very clear on those two things. This is not up for grabs. You just talked about a set of values that I would hope will be in place in a hundred years time. But I'm sure the way the modern soldier goes to war or the processes used in combat will change hugely in that time period. So principles and practice or values and, and actions, I think are another one of those wonderful yin yangs that elite cultures understand. In terms of the, the code, you'd be very surprised. I mean, again, to say how much is borrowed from the military, so certainly we did. We created a code of conduct. We went away and we, it was after a, a, a fascinating trip down to, to Limpston again where we suddenly realised we might not have been the greatest team after all. We had some half-decent individuals, but we weren't collectively working to make sure that they, we added up to more than the sum of the parts. And we created our code of conduct and every six months we'd redress it and look at it and it was the first thing a new joiner got and he signed up to it and go, those are the proudest. And that doesn't mean it was a completely totalitarian regime that you had to, there was no room for individuality or to be able to express that, but there were certain non-negotiable. No mm. mobile phones in public, always be five, 10 minutes late early for every team meeting. No, always stop and sign autographs for kids. Now, those things are minor compared to some of the things that you have in place. But it was really clear that we had to create a, a, a set of a set of actions that, that we would have. And most businesses actually who get, get introduced to this 
actually love that idea of signing up to something. It's so often they all know their numbers, they all know their KPIs, but no one really knows about each other. And mm. sitting down and spending the time to work out what gets the best out of you? What are the potholes to avoid with me? What are the signals I can send out to you that allow you to understand I need space or actually I need to lean on some? These mm. things, which is so good in your world, actually are really not as good as they should be in the corporate world. And businesses get, if you distilled it down to simple little questions, your purpose, the business's purpose is their why. And, and businesses take time to articulate that. They work out why the company exists. They're not sure on strategy. That's their what. You know, there's always a ton of time and effort and usually a few consultants knocking around trying to help um, with strategy. But they undercook often their how. They undercook and spend not enough time on behaviours. And, you know, we quote um, Alan Jope, the, the CEO of Unilever, mm. who, who makes the point that structure and strategy and organizational shape will always be trumped by behaviors. You can have the best structure, the best strategy, you know, your what and your why can be in fantastic shape. But if your how is sloppy or selfish or non-collaborative, um, you will not deliver. And again, that's the focus of a lot of the work that Will and I do. Mm. It's absolutely the center of gravity of the business that we've set yeah. up. And I think there's just, just one other mm. point I'd want to make, which is, you, you asked about culture. A thing that we were terribly proud of at BBH was that with regard to practices, we were a pretty liberal leadership group. How you got to great work and how you ran your team was really quite empowering, I would hope. But we were very zealous on values and behaviours. If you behaved badly, if you were a bully or you were not a team player, we were we were on you pretty fast. So... I, they say culture is what you tolerate. And I think in, in your England squad, there were consequences to breaking code of conduct or charter. And that was absolutely be true of, of the cultures I've been part of. You can't have a, a code of conduct or a set of behaviours or a set of values and allow people to um, to rip them up. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, we, we by and large, you know, live by the maxim of the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. Yeah. And yeah, that's your baseline. And that's what you're going to have to build everything on thereafter, which, which absolutely chimes at that point, Ben. I think you're, you're spot on. And perhaps you're also talking about pride, you know, both self-esteem, but pride in the, in the organization that you're working for or working with or part of, which ultimately comes down to how one is led through the, the myriad of conflicts and issues and, and problems that we all encounter. But it's, it's the trust that's brought in perhaps by the team to the leader yeah and pride in pride in the small things not just the big things mm. I, I think you know that i'm thinking of 100 military examples i've seen of that but elite cultures businesses are really good at that you know the the way you're greeted at reception the 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 way a meeting room is set up you know you can find out about a culture in the business world pretty quickly you know get out of the meeting room and the customer and client service areas and look a bit about about the building does that look like a group of people who are proud of their workplace mm. and of each other because again i go back to the point i made about tesco and ba how proud you are of your organization directly correlates to the quality of customer service you provide and most organizations still in some way or other 
have a customer that they have to surprise and delight. It was set yeah. at BBH. It was set. The tone was set by the first chap you met Absolutely. at your door. Victor. Victor would greet you. And actually, I think after time, because I was often popping into BBH, England training in London, go and see the guys, see what's going on, coffee, get away, get out of my environment. So you could sort of relax a little bit. And always met by Victor on the front door and just that, a, a gorgeous smile. How are you? Yeah, you're here to see Ben. And immediately... You know, there's someone who is proud to represent that organisation, and yeah. he'd remember his, clients his, from ten years before. He was valued by that, and Jason Leonard would be someone. Or yeah. what, what is his great strength? He would, if you met him once, he would remember in fifteen years' time the name of your third pet cat. I mean, just an encyclopedia. That's intelligence. It's not rocket science. It's not a physics degree. It's human uh, intelligence and human pride and representing and, and taking the time to really listen and embody that. So yeah. I think all great organisations have to have that pride. Yeah, and that bit that your analogy of, or rather your example of Victor is exactly what I think so many units and organisations within the military try. You know, that, that moment you turn up at the front gate or the front door, you meet that young soldier, airman, sailor, and you know they put you at ease and, and make you feel already part of that organization for that moment that you're there suddenly is a, is a snapshot of who they are and what they are as a, as a team. Yeah. And the All Blacks talk about it with Richie Moonga, who's got big shoes to fill. He's done a Phil Dan Carter's shoes. I mean, good luck. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's a tough number 10 Jersey to wear like the great Welch Jersey for so many years. And exactly that. He talks about someone comes in eye contact, welcome fist pump. You're in, you're part of the team present. Absolutely present moment. You're really talk, listening is a two-way thing, really involved in it and, and taking it all in. And, and I think all great organisations have to have that. Mm. It's funny as well because, again, I don't know if this is more true in business than in sport, but I'm sure it's true. It must be true in the military, which is there are some people in your team who may not be the best practitioners. They may not be the best executives, but they are the best for morale. They are the best for vibe. And of course, their standards have to be above a certain level. Otherwise, you don't get a job. But they're the people I want to sit next to on a flight out long haul. They're the people who lift your spirits on a difficult Wednesday. And those, you know, we talk in, I had an amazing guy in my team who was, who was always the first name on the team sheet because all he worried about was how everybody else was. High, high, high levels of emotional intelligence. And he was that very, very rare archetype in a business world whose whole reason for being was putting other people in position to score. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the old analogy, you know, be a fountain, not a drain. That's absolutely right. Some people have that uncanny ability to unlock the tension and add massive value at the most you know, stressful periods and for us in the military. And I'm sure those listening will be able to identify times when they've been in the, some of their darkest moments and someone's been able to say something or do something that sensibly, but allows you to, you know, just to yeah. regain perspective. It's always so important. In the team sip section of the book, you just, you both discuss how trust, and we're, we're talking about trust. You talk about trust as the value that, that underpins high performance teams and how they share the workload. Can you perhaps expand on that and give a, give a couple of examples? Uh, okay. So, how do you earn trust? How do you create trust? I think you've got to be in total control of your own particular basis. You got to, that's one of the, the commitments to what you're going to bring to the team. This is my super strength. I'm going to polish my super strength. 
I'm going, to, I'm going to deliver upon that. And then when you get to that sort of creation and everyone's delivering on their own superstars, it has that ability under pressure that you can we call it a, a relentless consistency with a willingness to change. And I don't think the reality is just if those who cut corners either in rugby, let's say on the sports science, on the fitness, on the technical aspects of it, very difficult to build a team founded on trust when you know there are those that are cutting corners and, and, and unable to deliver upon their talk. That's the sort of bit that on, when you talk to kids, they sort of their eyes glaze over a little bit because, oh God, does that mean I've got to really work hard? And I think Dave Lewis again, doesn't he? Basically. It's slightly, it's a slight segue, but he always says, we all talk about trusting our gut uh, and you want to be able to trust your gut in life. It allows you to make decisive decisions that, uh, as I said, the road of life is paved with flat squirrels who couldn't make a decision. So make a decision. But as Dave Lewis says, if you trust your gut without being in total control of your basics, you are basically just gambling. Uh, and so the great teams I had that had that trust was built not just on the fact they'd get up off the floor and be ready to get in a line and make the next one. It was actually understanding that when their role within their cog needed to turn, they would be a 10 out of 10 every time. A couple of things I'd add. I mean, the, the old cliche, but I think it's true, is trust is built really slowly and it's lost really quickly. So, you know, our, our actions have to match our narrative. You know, as, as leaders, if what we do does not align with what we say, we will undermine, we will lose trust. I think that's the first thing to say. And I think the same is true of culture, actually. Strong cultures are built slowly with actions, with stories, with behaviours. doesn't take too many rotten apples to really damage a culture very, very quickly. Back to, to what you tolerate. Where I've evolved my view a little bit on trust is something I've heard recently that I really, really like, which is a new member joins the team. And historically, I think my view would be, I will sit back and I will let this person win my trust. Their actions over time will determine whether I trust them or not. And where I've got to now is, I think, more interesting because I'm not sure we have that time often in a business environment. Whereas what I'm going to do is I'm going to go, you have my trust on day one. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. My boss has chosen to hire you. You've been made a part of this team and this tribe. Therefore, you have my trust. Now, you can lose it. You can lose my trust by not fulfilling or living up to the standards that we all aspire but you start, I give you the benefit of the doubt. And I really like that in a business context. It's a thing I talk about often to people. We are going to open our arms, induct, welcome new joiners, and we are going to give them, we're going to be positively disposed to them until they prove us otherwise. My, my boss at, at a affinity organization, a wonderful woman called Sabine Azenka, she sums it brilliant, trust by default. Yeah. So it starts, and like Ben says, you very quickly lose it. And from then, it's a long way back. It's a long road back, but actually, again, we're talking about time, give give that trust immediately and buy into that positivity. But so that's, I think that's absolutely right, and, I, and I'm sure everyone listening would would echo that. You know, absolutely trust your trust your people and let them them do the job that they're capable of doing and, and help them to develop and to achieve their potential. But looking at it up, how do you trust? How do you trust your leaders, and how do you develop your trust? in your leaders and as a leader how far do you think you should let people in so that they trust you i don't want my leaders to be superhuman i need my leaders to be confident but humble 
confident, you know, decisive, flat, black on the flat squirrels, but humble enough to know they don't know it all. You know, great to take the moral high ground, but don't unpack your bags, as they say. And, and I think that confident humility, what does the CEO of Microsoft say? We don't want to know it all culture. We want to learn it all culture. Mm. So leaders who embody that, and it goes back to what I talked a little bit about earlier, I know Ben alluded to it, uh, is having those belief systems that are non-negotiable, but having ideas that you can dance and debate with and understand can be questioned, might be wrong. The ability from senior leaders to unlearn, to rethink Jim Carroll has a good one, which is beware certain people. Yeah. Beware of certain people, not as in specific people, but beware of people who are 100% certain. That is a, a worry. Yeah. I, I heard a great model that I really liked, which was um, if you separate strategy, execution and results. So I was talking to a CEO and he was saying, really, to, to do a great CEO job, there are three core parts, the strategy, there's execution, and, and there's results. And I think of myself, and he said it as if this was a very well understood bit of language. He said, I'm, I'm a tight, loose, tight leader. I said, I beg your pardon. He said, yeah, tight on strategy, loose on execution, tight on results. Now he's running a 50 market global, hundreds of thousands of people organization. And what he then unpacked for me, which was fascinating, was all the different combinations. So tight, 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 they go nuts. You can't possibly run an organization of any size and be micromanaging all the strategy, all the execution, all the results can't be done. Uh, loose, 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 obviously hopeless. They don't last very long. Loose on strategy, tight on execution, loose on results. Again, they don't last very long. But then I sort of understood what he was saying. I'm tight on the strategy. I then empower good people to execute. And then I'm really tight on evaluating, you know, back to accountability and empowerment coming together. So it's quite an interesting model of leadership, I think. Uh, and one can immediately start not just plotting where we are, but where some of the other leaders we work with are. Yeah, I think that's... I was just sort of thinking how that sort of correlates into into how we operate. Um, you know, when we're delivering a set of orders and for a mission, you you have an, a commander's intent. You know, what, what is it that you want to to achieve? And within that, you have a, a purpose which is very defined, a method yeah. which is a handrail about how you're going to do it, but an end state which again is very very tightly defined. So it plays exactly Ben to what you're saying, which are you know, there's so many parallels between what we're doing, and um, and I think it's really interesting to hear it from a different perspective. And just to reinforce that, and I hope I get this the right way around, and please correct me if I get it wrong, um, coaches can see things that players can't feel, but players can feel things that coaches can't see. Have I got that? Yeah, That's yeah. right. And so yeah. out there, it's that ability to... Coaches can see things and take the time and the breath and the half-time and the opportunity in between games to, to tweak, and we're seeing this, but in the heat of... Excuse me for using the word battle, but I sort of, in, a, in the test match, in the heat of a test match, the, the, the worst teams, the underperforming teams are those who every time there's a stoppage, they're looking up, what should we do? They've got oh, to cut it? that umbilical cord. Yeah, and what the military, isn't the military one, no plan survives contact? If you're, mm. if you're rigorously sticking to the plan, and we see that on a sports pitch all the time, yeah. a team that isn't able to respond to what's playing out, we see that in business, yeah. uh, and I'm sure that's what you teach 
yeah. your guys because that adaptability and response if if the if the leader is still religiously sticking to the plan and trying to control execution you're going to get into terrible trouble yeah absolutely you know you know you're absolutely right no plan survives contact with the enemy the enemy has a vote in what they're going to do and you've got to remember that mike tyson's analogy of everyone has a plan so they get yeah. punched in the face it's all true and it's how you adapt your method of delivering your end state that's critical and you know one of the principles of war which which we adhere to is is flexibility it allows you to to adapt to follow the path that allows you to still get to where your your end state is is which is which is important i think for for what you're saying as well we talked about a little while ago about success failure and learning from that you know you, you hear lots of things here you, you can't win big if you're terrified of losing is a is a very good one but how do you balance that very fine line between ensuring that you do learn from failure and that it doesn't become you know, a defining moment and therefore everything falls apart? So this is one of my little hot buttons because I find it very frustrating when I listen to leaders talking about how much they love failure and you know lean into failure and well done, that's a great big fail. We don't try to, to go out and fail ever in business. Right. And anyone that's had a really expensive or soul-destroying failure will not want to do it again. So the obvious point is um, we try not to fail. What we do know to be true is that failure burns learning into our synapses in a way that pain does. You touch a boiling hot pan once, you, you don't do it again. Your, your memories and your learning accelerates during really tough times in a way that can't be replaced in the good times. The thing that, that I have learned, particularly with entrepreneurs, is entrepreneurs don't fear failure, they mitigate the cost of failure. So what they do is they beta, they don't bet the farm on innovation projects. They find ways of trying and experimenting and failing at low cost. So that actually they keep iterating until they find a winning solution where big businesses struggle sometimes because they don't have that, that mindset is there are people who might have spent their entire career without ever actually working too much of an entrepreneurial muscle because they've had the organization's backing uh, and they can make big bets with the company's money and really quite expensive bets. So again, I would go back to the, the point I made a moment ago, which is the key business-wise is, is not to be so terrified of failure that you can never attempt to win, but to try to make sure when you're doing things that are high risk that you have hedged you have made sure that the mm -hmm. mitigation should it go wrong is not going to take you mm -hmm. or the business down because that is no fun at all uh, and in the military you know, we would talk about having a con plan you know if if the initial plan starts to not be achievable because you're on the cusp of failure don't keep don't keep pushing to the edge to the edge and go over it you know, have that con plan that allows you to readapt the analogy train hard fight easy you've got to you've got to train as hard as you possibly can uh, and in training, learn where the edges are so that you can actually push the boundaries and understand what you're capable of. And sometimes that, that, that has to be about learning where the point of failure might be. Would that be, a, would that be a similar sort of thing? In, it's probably similar in sport, forgive me, but perhaps business, I don't know. I'd love to ask you a question on that. Can I ask you a question? Is that allowed, sir? Ben, absolutely. Of course. <laughs> One of the hardest things in business is to figure out when something isn't working if it's because the strategy is flawed or if it's because you're not executing it properly. So you'll have your mission 
There's a strategy for execution, which is different to mission, but there's also tactics, there's execution. And the very hardest thing to decide, particularly if it's a 12 month strategy is, is the strategy robust, but we just haven't been executing properly. Our tactics are poor, or is there a bigger problem here? The strategy might be flawed. And even if we execute brilliantly, it's going to be the wrong thing to do. How do we make, how do you make decisions like that? Because from a business context, that's hellish difficult. So for every problem set one encounters, we would run through a methodical process on, and it is very methodical, the, the estimate process, whether it's being done at the, at the tactical level in contact with the enemy, and it is done you know, in five minutes, but it's ingrained education on how you do that. So you're dealing with pressure, you're managing a team, it quite literally in contact with the enemy, but you're still able to have the, the training and the knowledge, the skill set to be able to take a step back and understand how you're going to achieve that problem at the very tactical level in a very short and defined yeah. space of time. In terms of looking at the, that's, that's the sort of, you know, the very, the very sort of tactical level, but looking at the, the bigger macro and strategic, strategic or even grand strategic level, it's understanding, again, it, it goes back to whether you're operating at the very highest level or very low, very lowest level, it's understanding how what your what your actual intent is, what you want to achieve, how you might achieve it, and what the end state is once you've got there, or where you're going. Uh, and it is, uh, you know, from a strategic level, it would be defining a campaign plan, which might have a series of lines of operation. And it goes back to the point we made earlier, which is talking about how you then have contingency plans, con plans yeah. that allow you to perhaps come off your intended path but still have the goal and the end state right. in sight. So you'd have a series of lines of operation, some of which are synonymous, some of which are complementary, and others are, are perhaps an occasion divergent, but all of which are pointing in the direction that you're, you're heading. But most and all of which should have a, the ability to avoid a problem or deal with a problem if it's suddenly presented to you so yeah. that you don't blindly follow um, one path and then hit a brick wall and not, not, not have the wherewithal or ability or resource to be able to do something about it. Fascinating. I played with a lot of lads who did that. The brick wall. <laughs> We're quite good at it. Really good. <laughs> very effective. So look, well, I'm, I'm very conscious of time um, and I, I'm, we keep talking. This is fascinating, genuinely r- really interesting. And there's so many things that, um, that, are, that are, are charming with me. Are, I hope, you know, we're, we're having a, a lovely conversation, which is brilliant. And you've, you've hit on 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 we've covered so many areas failure and, and culture within the, within a culture and we you, you you touched earlier on about empowerment empowering your people at what point do you think one might sort of go too far in terms of empowerment where your feedback culture becomes a direct challenge culture is that relevant all of the time and how do you balance that so that people are still bought into the delivery of the plan and have the ability to add their view, and perhaps indeed, they're, they're, they're rightly so, their, their view of the vision and their experience, but the, the team doesn't, doesn't fracture. I think there's two or three things in that question. The first one, which is amazing, actually, is we've hardly talked about feedback on this, on this whole call, and actually, mm. I don't think we talk about any topic as much in workshops as we talk about feedback mm. and challenge. Elite teams are not teams that don't challenge each other. They're teams that know how to challenge mm-hmm. and disagree. And I think every elite culture that we studied, everyone we interviewed, everywhere there was excellence was a high feedback culture. It was a collision-rich, high feedback culture. And, and I'm talking 
Royal Shakespeare Company, military, business, Pixar, etc. That's first point. Second point, we use a model in terms of um, how much you empower. We do a really simple model with leaders where we say football analogy, where we say last year, think of your leadership style last year and imagine a pie chart and you've got three parts to your pie chart. How much were you a player, just simple player on the pitch? How much were you captain of that team? And how much were you the coach in the dugout? What did those three slices look like? And critically, what would you like it to be next year? How would you like next year to be different? Do you want to be in the dugout a little bit more with proximity to play, but a little bit of different uh, distance because you're allowing your team to crack on? Do you still want to be skipper for a good chunk of your team, directing operations, but you're on the field? How would you like to evolve that? Because I would argue, even as CEO, even in the biggest of jobs, you still have to play sometimes. You still have to get on the pitch and score every now and again. Often you'll be skipper and often you'll be in the dugout. But situational leadership, which we talked earlier, is always a blend of those three things. And by the time you get to where I would say kind of abdication up in the stand in the director's box, you've probably moved into a different phase of your career. <laughs> You're probably not in the leadership phase. You're in the chairman coaching. Um, so a, a simple model that we use that I find quite helpful to plan where you were leadership-wise and where you might be headed. Uh, really good quadrant that Benny, Ben introduced me to. When you're talking about perhaps too many chefs, actually this comes about when there's a real lack of clarity about where the, the final responsibility for certain decisions lie and also where you might view the importance um, of those decisions and if you feel as though you're having your toes trodden on. So as a, as a, as a, as a player in that England rugby team, there, was, there were attacks and there were moves and I needed to have an idea and I needed to not have to ask the coach that we were going to tweak it and I was going to make it mine because I was responding to the, the, the threat that I see in front of me. Stay out of this. Uh, this is my bit. Then there's the absolute top end, which is Sir Clive making big decisions about selection where he has all the information and we don't get any input in that. So there's sort of two things. Uh, leader doesn't need to know any of the information and doesn't need to make any involvement in the decisions. Up at that end, he needs to know all the information, makes all the decisions. And then there's the two quadrants who mix those two. And I think as long as there's real clarity or it doesn't need to be put down on an axis and a, a dot, as long as there's a very sort of clear demarcation of where these decisions are falling and therefore you feel at certain times, and I go back to that analogy of having a hand on the steering wheel, as long as you feel that you're being listened to and you are part of the process and are contributing to that team being better, then I think you overcome and you then allow and create a feedback, a collision-rich environment that can have those discussions but when they walk out for us in front of the world's media, we are all aligned behind the decisions that have been made because the right people have had the right information to be able to make those calls. It's when people start flipping in and out and getting involved that, that then you start to get there's too many and it just becomes a great big shouting match and no yeah. one wins. No. And I think you're spot on and I think that's absolutely something that is akin to what we're 
we would all you know look at in the military where of course there is a, is a there is a hierarchical process but actually the the best teams in the military and 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 as you rightly say in sport are the people who bring in their team early on so they're bought into the the vision they're bought into the plan they're part of the delivery of the plan and then you get greater success which is which is imperative you talk about accelerating growth in the book, which is a which is a fascinating part of the of the book itself, we just touch on a couple of areas, if if we may. You know, Will, you've previously said you know, Johnny Wilkinson always wanted to be better at the end of every session and would give everything to every session. There are elements within the military that would recognise the, the unrelenting pursuit of excellence. D- does that or can that mentality transcend into the business world, or do you think it's very specific to? an elite organization or an elite team or can can everybody or anybody adapt that i do passionately believe that um however incremental every day can be finished in a better shape than you started now it's clear with a bench press or a sprint test they are perhaps a little bit more obvious and tangible but actually that that requirement for organizations and i love I'm involved in a, in a junior rugby club. When I say junior club, it's a, it's a men's team, but it's level five. And it's so far away from international rugby. And people think I'm complete buffoon. What are you, what are you running around at Maidenhead still? You're nearly 50. It's because I'm in an environment where players still, that, that club still wants to be better, still has that desire to be better at the end of the season, to be better next Saturday, to be better tonight, Tuesday, on a training day. And if you put me in that sort of environment, I almost, it, it almost, winning World Cups are almost irrelevant. It's, it's that absolute utopian place to be. So to get back to your question uh, in work, absolutely. If you're not in the pursuit of better, I think you're just getting overtaken by everyone else. And I, I would argue that that desire, that pride, that desire, whether you're an advertising agency, a broadband manufacturer, a retailer of coffee, the people that move those businesses forward are the people that have that Johnny Wilkinson desire to make their organisation the best it can possibly be. I think it's utterly transferable. Now, those leaders can be quite exhausting to work for. They can be quite very challenging, often quite difficult. Um, They apply a lot of pressure on themselves and on others. But these individuals drive organisations forward. I've had the privilege of working with and for lots of them. And I think at times I definitely played that role as well. My, the, the language I used to use, because I think pressure is a good thing, is I used to talk about the concept of positive pressure. You know, we will try and make BBH better this year than we were last year. We're going to make it better this week. And and I would genuinely start every year with the view of making it the best year we'd ever had. Otherwise, what's the point? We work too hard for it not to be not just, you know, I would hope good fun, but also allowing people to be their absolute best selves. And we, I learned over a long period, your top talent, your absolute best talent will put up with, with almost anything in terms of hours, difficulty, client challenges, what they will not put up with is a leadership group who aren't aiming high enough. That was where you hemorrhage top talent if they feel the leadership group are not aiming high enough. Mm. You talk about dealing with pressure. You know, how do you balance dealing with pressure and striving for success with positive 
mental health and, and managing perhaps anxiety that might come of not achieving one's goals. We talked earlier on about you know, failure and the fine lines in failure and success and being able to push to the limits. Um, you know, many, many high performing people will, will fall into cyclical processes of, of anxiety or depression after each major event or after each goal has been achieved. How might you both or individually have learned to deal with that? And how have you seen other examples of where other people have been able to, to manage that? So, I mean, I think uh, we all have our optimal zone of performance and, and that requires an element of anxiety, an element of pressure w- within that. I don't think you can hide away from that reality in life that tough things come with that. In a way, the, the greats talk about pressure as a privilege. I think one of the things we have to do is create an environment where it's okay to stick your hand up and talk about it uh, and for people to understand it and not to see that in any way, shape or form of weakness. I mean, Dan Carter talks very strongly about the All Blacks and his evolution through that team when he first joined the All Blacks. If you went to the head doctor, the, the psychologist, they thought there was something wrong with you. By the time his career finished, if you didn't go to the head doctor, they thought there was something wrong with you. And uh, there will be those who will thrive in the most extraordinary pressure and may never ask for help in any way, shape or form. And then there are those who you simply cannot do without who might need support. And if there is not an environment created where that is not seen as a weakness, I'm using too many negatives, where that is actually seen as a positive to be able to communicate that sort of language, then even in the most high pressure environments, those who not being led well or or not having that uh, psychological safety would sink, actually they find a way to thrive and be part of the winning process. Yeah. Can I make one one other point on pressure that I think is relevant? Yeah, Ben, please. Uh, yeah. Yeah, do, yeah. I always used to try, I continue to try to get my teams to separate performance and results. And again, this is a, this is well understood and documented, but if the team obsesses about the results, then often a poor performance can result in a win and a great performance can result in a loss. And the debriefs can be, um, can be misinformed and misjudged. I always used to really sweat how did we perform? That's the way I would want to do the review and the wash up. Mm. And if we performed great and we didn't win the pitch or, or the awards or whatever, that was really okay. If we didn't perform well, that's when we needed to really look at ourselves and work on. And I found that quite liberating because it, it then at least meant you were in control of your own destiny. There's nothing more stressful than trying to control uncontrollables what the client does what the weather's going to do what there's a whole lot of things that are out of your control don't waste energy on those what you can control is your performance and i used to find for myself but also for my team putting our energy on our performance was a good way of of managing stress and and managing pressure because Mm. look after your performance and and the results will most often follow yeah uh, and your point there, yeah, absolutely right. Uh, control the controllables, the things you yeah. can actually have influence over. Final question, Chats, if I may, is, or rather a, a final question. You have a fantastic heading in the book, which is, you know, put your oxygen mask on first. Mm. Uh, you know, you talk about the idea of proper selfishness. 
which might seem anathema to some people in the military and certainly some people in business about being selfish. You know, it's a, it's a requirement for leaders to look after themselves so, so that they can look after the team effectively. How can you, how perhaps might you elaborate or give us an example of, of how you see that playing out? Uh, so really simple tools business-wise is you, you go on holiday and you, you, your boss says, I don't want to hear, I literally don't want to hear from you. These down tools. And, and I think some of the organisations are coming in with a sort of 70-20-10 rule where 70% is focused on your basics and 10% is your own thinking time. There's a whole host of different ways and not all will work for everyone, but I think the great leaders are, are exploring avenues that allow you to have some thinking time baked into your week, have some recovery time baked into your month. I know you do some fantastic um, events talking about reset, recharge, these sorts of terminology that Olympic athletes are probably the best. And I certainly wasn't one of those, but they work to these four year cycles and they know when they need to peak and then they know when they need to taper. And understanding that less is more when it's going wrong and there's a temptation. Let's have another meeting. Let's beat it out. We don't. No one's leaving until that candle top the pyramid. The top. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's it's that. It. It's actually. It's, where is the is this in the decision making process? How much time is this? And actually, um, I think those that take that time to breathe, to settle, and to. I've, I've, I hope I've made sense there. I've got passionate about it because it's something we talk a lot about. It is vastly underrated. Mm. Uh, telling a teammate just to go, in, in my parlance, just go and take 10 minutes sat down. In a work parlance, just go take the dog for a walk. Just mm. go outside. Just take a moment here to breathe. Mm. Come back. It might be however long that might be. And I think the great leaders allow that space. The core of it... I think, and, and we've tried to do this constantly in the book, is take learnings from sport that might be applicable to business and vice versa. Not everything in sport is more advanced and more progressive and more enlightened than it is in business. But this area 100% is. Athletes understand that if they're going to perform, they have to pay attention to their nutrition, their hydration, their sleep. You know, they have to look at these things executives are still light years behind in the way they look after themselves or don't look after themselves and then believe they're going to be able to perform and cope with pressure. So the, the simple heading, we get on an airplane, we're told if something goes wrong, there is nothing we can do for anyone else if we haven't attended to our own oxygen first. Mm. And the simple leadership message that we give people is you can't possibly give your direct reports or your teammates' positive energy if you're not nurturing and cultivating your own energy. Mm. So you have to pay attention to those things. We, we work with a great guy called Jeff Dodds who says that if the leader, you know, in the old days when we went to things called offices, if you're leaving to go to the gym at lunchtime or to go to your kids' play, leave loudly. Get seen leaving. Tell people you're going to the gym. Tell people you're going to be home for bath time because you have to role model those behaviors as leaders. If people lower down the organization, they're going to mimic and ape and follow you because mm. most of us will work better in a working environment. If we think we're doing a good job at home, if we've trained a bit, if we've slept, okay. 
passionate topic. We could do a whole podcast on self-care protocols, but I think it's a really nice one to uh, to cover off at the back end because it's so important for performance. Absolutely. And it, it mirrors so many things that you've touched on about allowing people to see who you are, allowing people in a little bit so they understand who you as a leader are and, and what your core belief, purpose and, and function is, which allows the team to prosper. Guys, before you go, I'm going to, uh, at the end of every uh, interview we ask a few quick fire questions just to, just to get a little flavor of of what's influenced you over the course of your careers if you're content i'm going to ask both of you in turn ben who's the best leader who's the best leader you've ever worked with and why uh nigel bogle he always made me think differently and better about any given topic i never ever took nigel a problem or a challenge and didn't walk away i didn't always agree with him but i always walked away um, with a fresh and interesting perspective i would have to go with sir clive woodward because he picked me for what i could do rather than dropped me for what i couldn't Okay, well, most inspiration... Start with Ben, because he always... Get, I need more thinking time. No, I know, I know. And I saw the head in the hand, so I'm coming to you on this one, I'm afraid. <laughs> I nearly said my dad, that was why. I was thinking, well, well, that's lovely. my dad, an extraordinary um, walker of talk, just got, just got things done and just showcased to me as a young, at a young age what hard work really yeah. was like. Quick fire we, we sometimes un- overlook our. We sometimes overlook. Yeah. Our, Sorry, our quick fire round. That was a slow round. Sorry, my sponsor. Well, we, we'll, we'll stick with both of them. Yeah. Mr. Greenwood and Sir Clive. A doctor, Will Greenwood, MBE. There we are. It's amazing. I always joke. It's amazing what they'll give you when you win a World Cup. You've got far more letters than me, sir. <laughs> <laughs> um, Will, who's the most inspirational leader from history and why? Wow inspirational leader from history i tell you what okay tell you what i'll do uh, i'll be classic sports guy right and so it's so clear because I, I don't understand the answer can vary so let me say i'd love to play in a pep guardiola team hmm. i mean it doesn't come anywhere near i mean it's, the answer is henry um why would i want to play in a pep guardiola team just watch him change teams, change people, change organisations, relentless winner, never satisfied with middle of the road, prepared to try things, fail, get back up, go again. In the meantime, I'll try and think of a historical figure, but in the short term, I'll stick to sports guy. I'm fascinated to know what Ben's going to say. This is the hardest question I've ever <laughs> been given on a podcast. Come on then, Ben. Uh, so I'm an Alexander the Great geek. Oh, he was good. So I've, <laughs> I'm, I went through a period where I was slightly obsessed and read everything I could. And his audacity, the, there's one battle in particular I just find utterly fascinating, which is Gargamella when he first, well, when he beats Darius with 10 to 1, you know, they don't know exactly the numbers, but he pulls off, you'll know that he pulls off this ludicrous manoeuvre to, to lead of a cavalry attack. And I'm utterly fascinated by him. My answer to this question is Hannibal. Oh, here we go. Yeah, Hannibal. Because... Can I just ask, methodology-wise, this is the strangest quickfire <laughs> I've ever seen. I don't, Hannibal, long, to be honest, it's the longest answer we've ever had. And immediately what springs to mind for me is Hannibal. Hannibal. Because of the way when the Carthaginians beat the Romans and they expected him to come by sea, 
He took the elephants through the Alps and one of the great tactical manoeuvres to do the thing your opponent least expects, to discombobulate them. Brilliant. What's the most valuable leadership lesson you've learned? Tough on the issue, soft on the person. Brilliant. Never got that as a kid. Never understood it really. Thought everything had to be batter, batter, batter. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you doing this? As opposed to, okay, this is the problem. Uh, and, and Ben always, I, I'm not sure if you said the exact words. Yeah, I listened to Ben like, always, always leave people feeling better about themselves at the end. No matter, contextualise, address, move on. Brilliant. Ben? Uh, I spent a lot of my career believing I had to project a sort of bulletproof, superhuman, always positive, always confident. I knew where we were headed and I very rarely lowered my guard, showed any vulnerability, asked for help even. Um, it was late in my career where I learned, actually, I wasn't helping my direct reports by projecting an image that wasn't true, of course. You know, I wasn't, didn't have it all figured out. I did need support and help. I mean, I'd use people like him and, and my wife and others for support, but um, I wish I'd learned earlier the power of showing a bit of vulnerability. Of course, you've still got a lead. Of course, um, no one wants to see a, a nervous pilot on an airplane. But I wish I'd got more comfortable showing a bit of vulnerability earlier. That's brilliant. With hindsight, what would you tell, and you can answer this together, definitely. What would you tell a young Will and Ben as they drive away from Durham heading for life? Ah, wow. Okay, that's such a good question. I will go with the fact that I still look back with regret at having not necessarily played abroad, not necessarily worked abroad. I would say, give more things a go. Have I become, or, yeah, I'd, I'd say that would be, is that a regret? You often regret things that you don't do rather than remember things that you do do. Will, if the chance comes to travel, travel. Uh, and mine would be, Ben, when your kids are young, make sure that when you get to the end of the year and you've given absolutely everything to, to your company, you've saved a little bit for your family. Because I think back on some years where I got home to my family at the end of a year and I'd given everything to BBH and I was not my best self for my for the people who mattered most, um, I hadn't saved enough energy for them. And it's a message I feel really passionately about sharing, which is those years are gone in a heartbeat and um, make sure it's back to looking after yourself. There's a, there's a team that you're part of at work, but there's a really, really important team that you're part of at home. And they often, um, they need our best and they don't always get it. Will, Ben, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for giving us your time and insights into so many wide and varied areas. Uh, I'm really grateful. Thanks so much. Thank you, sir. An absolutely fascinating insight there from two individuals who have operated and performed at the very highest level of international sports and global business. As ever, a huge amount of information and ideas have been generated for our team here, and I hope also for you. From how to be a good follower, to the need for a mentor to maximize your own capability and improve the performance of your team. Critically, generating a learning culture and not being afraid to push to the point of failure allowed today's guests to maximize their own potential and achieve notable success. 
If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, do please subscribe to our podcast. Please also share and comment. For more information on British Army leadership and to get in touch with anyone on the team, please visit our website. And of course, follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn.